listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson, and today we're talking about the five things that you look for in a new sales job. Sales is a dynamic profession. A lot of people have a tendency to change working for different organizations, and so the question always comes up, what should you be looking for in a new sales role? What is it that's going to set you up for success, ensure that the the support you need from the organization you're working for is there? What types of things should you be looking for that maybe you're not thinking about when you're really concerned about landing that next job. Keep in mind that the vast majority of sales executives average tenure is 18 months. And when sales executives are switching, they have a tendency to switch the sales teams as well. What we want to do is provide you some insight. Brian Burns and I are going to break down some of the things that we look for in, in new sales positions and things that we think you should be paying attention to as you start to think about and contemplate your next move. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Brian. Hey, Chad. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, let's talk about the top five things that you look for in a new sales job. So the, you know what? The first one for me, for me personally, is leadership. I need to know that the people that I'm going to be working for and or with can teach me something. I, I don't know if that's normal for everybody, but for me, if I'm going into an organization, I'm constantly trying to you know better myself. Whether I'm going in as an individual contributor or I'm running sales or I'm running sales and marketing, I want to make sure that there are other people uh, that have a leadership style that is conducive to you know, self-exploration and growth. And if there's not somebody there that can teach me something, uh, then all that happens is I end up getting in trouble. <laughs> yeah. It just gets ugly really fast. Yeah, I mean, mine was number one was manager, you know, because I've been with a bad manager, a couple of bad managers, and it just doesn't work. Where either it's either a personality conflict, a style conflict, or you know, the person you know has a preference to some other reps and is unfair, or just has checked out. And I've I've seen a lot of bad sales managers. Yeah, I actually had one at a client. I. Uh, I won't give you the time frame because somebody listening might actually be able to tell where I was. But I have a client who I'm, I'm sitting there talking to him. You know, we're in we're in Q4 now, and the push should be on. And this sales manager actually said to me, "Well, we hit quota halfway through Q3, so you know we're good for the year." And I and I, I it, you know, it was one of those moments where you're where I'm like, okay, I am uh, I'm in here as a consultant, and so I need to keep my mouth shut. Because I can say things that your boss wouldn't tell you, but I need to make sure I really temper it because that to me, that's, it's, it's weak leadership. It's weak management. You're not, you're, your goal is to make as much money for the company as possible. And if you're over quota, you got to have accelerators or something on your comp plan or your team does. So why aren't we pushing even harder? Like let's set a record. So if for me, a, a big part of it, I would say a second one for me would be the drive, the drive of the organization and the, the rest of the team. Are you really just there to get across the finish line or are you really there to loop it, right? And get across the finish line twice before your competition does once. If you can find that type of organization and those types of people, um, there's a great deal of energy and excitement that keeps you focused when, you know, sales is an up and down kind of thing. So if you can work with those types of people, it carries you through those those rough times. 
Yeah, I mean, if the company's got to be the right fit for you, because if they don't like salespeople or they <laughs> they don't want to compensate for people, and that's existed. You know, I've I've been at a company where the, you had the necessary evil attitude, and the you know they paid commission on receivable as opposed to booking, and you're like sometimes you you waiting you know ninety one hundred and twenty days from the time you close that deal to actually getting you forgot about it. Oh, yeah. You know, you didn't forget about it, but you're like oh. God, finally they paid. <laughs> and you, and that's not really the sales, you know, once the company accepts the order, that then it's on the company, right? right? If the if the company don't doesn't think they're credit worthy, that's one thing. And you and you take it on consignment or something, but <laughs> I actually had a CEO uh, I worked for a company, and during the interview process, you know, you're, you know, I was going going in to, to run the sales organization, and I'm, I'm interviewing with everybody else, so director of strategy, VP of strategy, VP of tech, all of this stuff, and they all tell me, hey, you know, your final interview is going to be with the CEO, and just so you know, uh, he really doesn't like salespeople, and I'm just kind of <laughs> like, okay, all right, well, I know a lot of CEOs like that. What what blew me away was the first thing the CEO said to me on the phone was after the introductions was, hey, just so just so you know, I absolutely hate salespeople. And I'm like, I'm wondering to myself, is this really where I need to be? Is yeah. this really a battle I want to fight? Because if you don't understand the role that sales plays in, in company growth, especially in that complex services industry that we were in, then I think there might be some bigger issues here. And I'm probably just going to once again end up getting in trouble. <laughs> Right. And I, the two times that that existed, um, neither company really did well. Uh, I was interviewing with the founder and I go, what, what don't you like about certain salespeople? Well, I don't like greedy salespeople. I go, what does that mean to you? And he goes, you know, you know, the, the commission, it's kind of a gift. And I'm like, hmm, is, is the equity a gift? <laughs> you know, why don't you spread that around? <laughs> right. It's like everybody else thinks you know is easy for them or easy for other people but hard for them oh yeah everybody wants to be in sales until quotas get handed out until <laughs> yeah. the quotas get handed out right everybody's like oh man the sales sounds so easy it sounds so fun you guys make a lot of money so all right well, the successful ones make a lot of money but there's a huge risk reward you know i, I was joking uh, just a couple of weeks ago with a client and i said you know look there's a reason the divorce rate in complex b2b enterprise sales is so high you know, there's a reason I'm on number two, right? Divorce number two. It's like <laughs> th this is this can become an all-consuming thing, and and it's you have good years, and if you're really good, your bad years aren't really horrible, but you're always you know you, you're not going to be guaranteed a, a, a specific amount of money every two weeks. It's it's about the quota and the performance, and so. Don't fall in love, you know, marketing people or consultants or whatever with this concept you have in your head about what sales is. You really need to understand that it is a discipline and it takes an approach and it takes a level of expertise and commitment that every type of discipline needs. And so don't hate us because we're willing to take the risk. Work with us to make sure that we're all successful in the end. If you can get that collaboration, and maybe I would say for me, that's probably my third point, would be the ability for the organization as a whole to collaborate you know, with the sales team, not keep them in a silo, right? Yeah. That, that's something I'm always looking forward to. Now, I've taken jobs, I'll be honest, where the sales team has been siloed because I think it'll be fun to break it down. <laughs> It's not, not always fun. I don't know. Maybe, I just, maybe I'm a little masochistic, but I'm just kind of, all right, let's break down the silos and you guys have to understand, you know, what sales is all about and who salespeople are. If they're willing to do that, great. Let's, let's do it. When they're not, it makes for a very long year. 
Now, how how have you done research on a company before you take it? And, you know, give us an example of one time you either made a mistake or you kind of <laughs> <laughs> or you made that emotional decision. Well, all right. So typically for me, the research starts with, you know, I'll of course want to look at all, you know, the, how they're doing financially. So if they're public, I'm going to go check out 10Ks. I'm going to listen to analyst calls and stuff. But when it comes to the cultural stuff, you know, there's things like glass door and you yeah. got to take it all with a grain of salt, right? Because, you know, the people that have a tendency to put stuff up the most are the ones that are disgruntled or whatever. If you read enough of those, you can figure out that, uh, you know, some of them you know, maybe got rubbed the wrong way or they weren't given something they thought they deserved. But I'll start to try and get a sense for that. If I can, I will try and make sure there's somebody in my network or somebody in my network can connect me with somebody that works in that company. And so then then I can get an inside scoop and I can understand how they're how they're operating. What's the internal culture like? How are they structured You know, from somebody else's perspective other than the people that are trying to hire me? So when I go in for the interview, I'm very prepared with a lot of very specific questions. I want to fill the gaps on my understanding of what they look like kind of three-dimensionally, not just what you look like on the web or just what your people are saying about you, but where are you also planning to go? What's, what's the vision? Now, you can do all of that and do it really well and still make a crappy choice, <laughs> which right. I have done. For me, though, it wasn't, it wasn't about the people. It wasn't about uh, – it wasn't even about product or, or product roadmap. It was – I was looking for, at that time, I was specifically looking for an opportunity to work with a company that was about to go through the IPO process. I've done acquisition after acquisition and sold companies and done all of that. I just wanted to try something new. So I made a decision to join a company based on the fact that their current plan when they hired me was to go IPO in the next 18 months. Perfect. Not a problem. I can take care of North American sales. We can get it up where it needs to be and do that. Six weeks after I took that job, they had a board meeting and CEO calls me and says, so we kind of changed our mind. I think we're going to go the acquisition path. Oh. And I was like, all right, I just went through a really ugly acquisition. Actually, it wasn't an acquisition. It was a takeover and it was ugly and I don't want to do that again. So I appreciate that you guys have to do what's right for your business. I was like I said, six weeks in, I said, I'll finish out. Uh, the first half of the year, because I don't want to leave you high and dry, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not sticking around for the long haul. Now, I was lucky enough, they were really, they were really understanding about that. They understood because I'd been very clear up front about what I was looking for. They worked with me on that. And again, I didn't want to leave them high and dry. But it, it, no matter how much research you do, at some point, you won't know, you know, you know, like we were talking about before, if the car you just purchased really fits you well until you get an opportunity to go out and take it through those curves and push it to its limits. So no matter how much research you do, there's going to be that awareness and that, that realization that comes from actually being in the trenches in that organization. Yeah, because that, that honeymoon is very short. <laughs> Ridiculously <laughs> short. <laughs> it's like two or three days. And and what I've found is typically the reputation of a company is pretty solid. I mean, pretty accurate. When you start hearing, you know, disgruntled people or people that are, you know, headhunters that are putting you in touch with people who used to work there to warn you. And, and I've gone against their warnings and I've you know, and the warnings are there for a good reason. And, you know, so, you know and, and plus, you know, you, you want to find out, you know, we already talked about the manager. You got to understand the company, the culture, how they, not just how they view sales, like what you said, you know, are they, are they looking to get acquired? Are they growing? Are they shrinking? You know, a lot of my 
decisions were, you know, came right after they got a round of funding. And the typical thing was to go hire 10 salespeople. Now, they're going from one or two to 10, you know, literally overnight. You know, you get thrown in a room, you get your laptop, then you're thrown back out in the field. You know, and you got 90 days to sell something and you're like, yeah, no leads, no market reputation. The product's kind of sketchy. No lead. I already told us that no leads. You know, your SE, your your assistants have never demoed the product before. It's like and they expect return immediately. Oh, yeah. And then you go through the, okay, the first quarter, they fire one person. The second quarter, they fire two people. Oh, my God. They start to prune the tree really quick. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of those things, though. I mean, I've noticed a couple of organizations I've worked for, um, if you can get past that, you know, hey, we hate salespeople kind of thing. Because I actually did take that job with that CEO who said he hated salespeople. And we we were successful. We, We did some really cool stuff, and we were able to sell the company. But if you can get you know, to that point where you can help the organization understand sales. Now, a lot of salespeople don't want to do this. They just want to go sell. But if you're in an organization that says, hey, you hit the ground and in 90 days, let's assume it's a B2B complex sale. It's not not a transactional sale. But if it's a B2B complex sale and they're giving you 90 days to generate a return, then somebody needs to have a conversation with that CFO about what it really takes to ramp up in complex sales cycles. Um, They'd never like that conversation. But if at least they're willing to listen, if they're at least willing to engage, then it's maybe worth uh, worth taking the risk. Otherwise, you just watch them prune the tree. There goes one. Right. There goes two. Yeah. There goes three. And now, now you're not doing you're not doing your job. You're looking for your next gig because you know the guillotine's coming. So you know it, it it can be really disruptive to some of those organizations. But it is. It also can be extremely fun. It's kind of the wild wild west in those situations. Yeah, and then today where you have, you know, a lot of SaaS stuff where the prices are a lot less and as opposed to, the, you know, the multi-million dollar enterprise deals that took forever. <laughs> right. But, you know, so you can get maybe a beachhead, you know, you can get a couple of customers up and running and stuff and, and then you get some momentum going. And, and, but that's – it is so hard to judge from the outside. What, what a great company, a great product – you know, and I think you have to go on like, you know, G2 crowd and what are people saying about the product? You know, how much funding do they have? You know, and I got so good at it. I go, OK, they got this much funding. They got these number of people. So I know what their burn rate is. So they've got nine months to either get, you know, enough business or another round of funding or they start laying people off. So you can kind of guess how much time they have. And <laughs> And then you got to like ask them, you know, what are your expectations? You know, how long does it th- you think it's going to take? And if they, if they have no idea or it's all, you know, some MBA, you know, spreadsheet that they put together, it's like that's like, you know, uh, building a rocket on a whiteboard and then going out to, you know, Cape Canaveral and hoping it's going to work, you know. <laughs> Let's light this thing and see what happens. Yeah, let's see what happens. <laughs> Who wants to get in? <laughs> Who wants to sit up top? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and too often, you know, you do not want to be in that, you know, plain <laughs> firebomb that usually it turns out in most startups. I think today people are starting slower, you know, with an inside, you know, sales development role and then maybe going an outside. And, you know, hopefully, you know, the people listening want to be on the outside because that's where all the fun is. 
Yeah, and the, and it's interesting. I mean, I guess maybe we're I'm talking too much about my age, but you've definitely seen like right before the if I say the bubble burst for those that don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the internet bubble. <laughs> but, but right before the bubble burst, all those you know, I was working for a three dimensional photography company, um, and it was awesome product. We were working with NASCAR and Paul Malev and all of these things. But all of a sudden, the bubble burst. There's no more funding, and those organizations that had scaled up and just done what you said. You know, here's ten people throw them in a room give them a laptop here's a quick demo go make us money um those were the ones that i saw suffer now i think you know typically today we're seeing people having learned from those lessons and you you know you mentioned the sales development role um to see companies the side you know that are 50 million or less 100 million to actually be investing in sales development early uh, is something you never would have seen 10, 15 years ago in the startup realm. So it seems to me like it's getting better. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm just jaded and skeptical because of the crap I went through when I was coming up, but it seems better today, but you still run into those instances where they're like, okay, hey, look, um, we invested in sales development. And so we didn't just hire 10 people and put them in a room. We hired 10 people. We put them in a room. We gave them three days of training and a laptop. And then put them in the field, right? So you still have to, you kind of have to temper that perspective with, you know, what people are actually saying versus what they're doing. Yeah. And I think today we have to convince management that the outside is where the money is, not the expense. And I think there's too many CEOs I talk to or VPs of sales that I talk to today that all they care about is the cost of sales. What you care about is the top line. That's what sales job is. It's not the bottom line. And, you know, I've got a lot of clients where they all oh, we want to do it 100 percent inside. And I go, well, you're never going to get an enterprise deal on the inside. Right. 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 <laughs> and, and you look at, um, you know, I pick on HubSpot too much, but I, that's why they haven't won the market. Marketo and Eloqua had an outside sales force. Right. And, they, and HubSpot doesn't want to do that. And it's like, OK, you don't have to do it. But what you suffer from is the college kids are going to get the, the next order. They're going to get the beachhead. Right. But the but also what's going to happen is somebody else in that account is going to want another product and they're going to have some sales rep coming in talking to the CMO, not talking to the the ops people or the digital marketing people. They're going to they're talking two levels above you and they're like, oh, and they're going to deframe the, the, the toy. And this, I mean, we, we, I should have brought this up during our demo discussion is the other key part of a demo is a lockout. Right. If you can come up with something that you have that nobody else has, like, like your, your Camaro with, you know, some feature, some capability, you know, horsepower, whatever it is that nobody else has, boom, you won. Yeah. Well, HubSpot's a great choice, and I'll, I'll be right up front. I do I use HubSpot's sales stuff, and and uh, I, I do enjoy using it. But I'm running a small company. On the enterprise side, people buy from people. So if you know Marketo and Eloqua, they're going up and they're talking to the actual buyers. They're talking to Power about what really yes. makes a difference to their organization. HubSpot's inside team, they're really good. I mean, I've, I've had some great conversations with a couple of those guys. If we want to talk about the specifics of what HubSpot is going to do with this feature for my business or that. But when you're talking enterprise, you know, you go back to people buy from people and they make emotional decisions. So if you don't have somebody sitting with them and helping them through that journey, you just think you're going to call them once or twice, maybe turn on your camera, you know, when you've actually <laughs> done your hair and put on a shirt instead of PJs, yeah. right? That, that That's going to work. It doesn't work. It just, it just doesn't. And it's not 
because the company's approaching it the wrong way, it's just kind of ignoring the the human factor in complex sales. Having somebody, you know, a salesperson that can be consultative, that can be that, you know, guiding light at, to solve your problems, that has to happen in person and it requires trust and credibility and rapport. And that's really difficult to get and maintain when all you are is a face on a screen. You can't. And let's face it, you know, we've all done, certainly you and I have done, you know, the thing on the phone, but then you go and you meet someone. Yeah. The dif- difference is it's not twice as good. It's 10 to 100 times better and 10 to 100 times more effective. And you find out things that you will never find out on a screen sharing app at all. Oh, yeah. Well, they'll tell you more. I mean, you you get to walk. Okay. So, I mean, just think about it with a screen share. I mean, and this is probably kind of, you know, Captain Obvious stuff, but with a screen share, the meeting starts at 10 o'clock. You turn it on at 10 o'clock. You start talking. You turn it off at 1030. If I'm there face to face, you're coming out to get me in the lobby at 945. We're talking as we go through the office. Maybe you're giving me a tour. We're stopping to get some coffee before we go in. And then after the meeting's over, you got to walk me out. That's another 30 minutes of, of time where you get to build just focus on building rapport and make sure that if you didn't set a hook in your 30 minutes, you know, you have that opportunity to do it as you're walking out. I think the technology is awesome. It's great. It allows us to do a lot of stuff at scale, but it, I haven't seen it necessarily be as effective uh, at all when it comes to building that type of rapport and that trust. That that happens when you're pressing the flash, you're shaking somebody's hand, you're looking them in the eye, and they believe you when you say, I'm going to help you solve this problem, and here's how I'm going to do it. There's no substitute for that. Right, and, and they'll coach if they want you and they want your product. They will coach you on how to get it done. They will tell you who is really full of crap, who's, who's, <laughs> who the real deal is, yep. you know, what the real timing is. You're not going to get that on the phone. It's too guarded. It's too cold. It's impersonal. There's no very little bit of trust is built there. You are a drone to them. You are a, you know, a live video to them that they, they want to you know, limit that time for. Right. And, you know, when I talk to, you know, a CEO and they, they want to make deals bigger, I go, you got to have somebody who will go to the customer, you know, whatever configuration that looks like, you know, literally I was at a, co- a company where I was the only outside guy. Now I sold three quarters of the company's revenue <laughs> in one deal. Right. And it was like, Oh, Oh, I go, that never would have happened. You know, and 80% of my selling was still over the phone. But when I got together with people, you know, who were like five miles from where I live, I'd go, I'd sit down, I'd find out what the real issues are. I blocked out the competition that was a hundred times bigger than us that, you know, this deal wasn't even big to them. This deal was big to us. And I was like, you know what's going to happen? You guys, you know, raise your hand. Five guys are going to jump on you to help you. Right. The the other person, you raise your hand, you might get a call back in five days. (laughs) That's the difference. And I blocked them out. And that's what really makes deals happen. Because when you look at a startup, the first deals they get are from friends and family, people they know, people they worked with, and that relationship. I mean, we're kind of getting off topic, but right. <laughs> I mean, th- this is critical, especially for your career, because the people who are making half a million, a million dollars a year are not SDRs setting meetings. No. They're people doing <laughs> enterprise deals. Well, so, what, have you noticed, so uh, I remember, so I've been, I, I'm a face-to-face guy, I have been my entire career. And I mean, I, I'll use the technology, you know, much like I'll use it to my advantage, but 
I've noticed a shift, and maybe it's because of the advent uh, or the increased usage of SDRs and the increased use of the tech. But now when I talk to somebody on the phone for the first time, or better yet, meet them in a networking event or whatever it is, and, and I say to them, oh, you're in Denver? I, I'm in Denver too. Um, let's, not, let's not get on the phone. I'll, why don't I swing by your office? I'll just swing by your office. We'll spend 15 minutes talking. And they're like, you're going to drive all the way across Denver to spend 15 minutes with me? Yeah, I would, I would prefer to do that than to get on the phone for 15 minutes. The, the surprise, at first, they, at, I'm used to seeing like 10 years ago, uh, I don't know if I'm ready for that step. Now it's like the surprise, like, wow, this person actually wants to come spend time with me. And I yeah. find that the, the you know, number of people that say no uh, has gone way down. Like, oh yeah, come on over, let me show you the office. Let me, you know, let's spend 15 minutes, which turns into 45. And you know, I, there's just not a lot of people and I don't want to make it an age thing. I don't want to sound ageist, although I probably am. It's probably it's a millennial thing. Like they just don't want to get in the car and go over there, or the organization is structured in such a way that they can't. Um, I, I think it's more that. Yeah. I think it's uh, because if you're in sales and you're not out meeting face to face with clients, your income is capped. Even it just because the deal will not be as big. And I, I've I've seen it too many times. Believe me. No one hates getting on a plane more than me. <laughs> but, but when you do and, you know, go through all that time consuming, arduous hassle. But when you're sitting down with that client, you know, I can get so much more done and tell exactly. I get a sense for where the deal is and what it's going to take. You cannot get that on the phone. Oh, no. There's so much you can't read from. I mean, no matter if you're looking at them on camera and I. I probably could say that maybe only 20% of the online meetings I do actually have us all turning on our cameras. But when I'm sitting across from you, you can read their body language. You can get a sense for what they're experiencing. You can tell by, you know, are they looking at you or are they looking at their phone? You know, that there's just so much more information you can collect face to face. So for me, one of the things that I, I would, you know, kind of bring it, try and bring it back is to say, if you're working for an organization that doesn't want you meeting face to face, that's a flag for me. That's a flag. It's yeah. a big flag for me. It, that's a first job only. Yeah. And and if you don't get that that opportunity, and if that, that if you're you're okay with that, that's fine. But don't have the expectation because you're capped logistically at probably like one fifty a year. Right. As an as an in, as a great inside account exec. Right. On the outside, the, the sky's the limit. It's up to your creativity. And look, that actually brings me to my next thing. It's like you know, really territory and comp plan are so tightly coupled that. You know, how often have you been like bait and switched where they're like, oh, the <laughs> <laughs> oh you'll have uh, the whole West Coast for three hours you know? right. <laughs> or the, the comp plan. You know, they have a high target income and, uh, you know, but the base is kind of small, but the variables are so staged that, you know, you, you really have to crush it to get that target income. One of the questions I think one of the questions I always ask the first question I ask about a comp plan is is it capped? Oh, if, forget it. Is, it. If yeah. it's capped, then we don't have anything else to talk about because that's not yeah. why I do. That's not why I do what I do. So if it's not capped, then we can talk. Then the way I think looking at territory and comp plan, one of the questions becomes how often in the last twenty four months or even go back three years have you changed the territories? Have they been realigned? Like that, I want to know that because that tells me you guys are still trying to figure it out. Um, and then when it comes to the comp plan, if it's so over-engineered, yeah. I, I don't, you know, and look, 
let's just be realistic. Sales reps, when you put a comp plan, and I've designed my fair share and watched this happen, and I've accepted my fair share and done it myself, it's a game. It becomes a game. It's a show game. You just set the rules. And my job is to make as much money as I can finding holes in your plan. <laughs> right? So, and, and, and that's just the reality of it. Now, if it's so over-engineered and you've got like this huge committee, let's say it's an SMB, small medium business, and the, the comp plan's so over-engineered and there was like 10 people involved in creating it, that's a little bit of a flag. Now, I'm not saying don't take the job. I, it's just really make sure you understand the comp plan. The ones that I really find... Uh, the most flexible, and this I think goes back to the manager and the leadership, is like, look, they know what you're doing with the comp plan. So they're going to put the comp plan in front of you and then just be honest and work with them and say, look, I okay, I can work within this comp plan, but if I find a situation that isn't covered by the comp plan, we need to have a conversation. If they're willing to do that, okay, th- th- then I'm not so worried. I like the simple comp plans. Set a target. Don't talk to me about what you think my total target comp should be because it's going to be bigger than that. Uh, it, if it's not capped, it's definitely going to be bigger than that. So don't. I'm not worried about that. I'm more worried about it's not being over-engineered. It's easy to understand, and it's not some you know four Excel spreadsheets that I've got to create in order to calculate what fraction yeah. of what I'm going to get when. That's a pain in my ass. I don't. I don't have time for that. If if it's you know relatively simple and straightforward, and it's not capped, we're good. Now bait and switch. That's happened twice. I have a tendency. The first time I kind of live with it and, you know, then that turns into the dark cloud that follows you around. The second time I was like, whoa, 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 I'm out. <laughs> no way. Right. You right. guys because just jumped it. I, I can go someplace else and do this. And it kind of actually swings back to the how, how good of a relationship with you have with the manager. Because right. if the manager can cook a great comp plan for you, you're golden. Right. But if you if you if you get like things like uh, have the territories change within the scope of the comp plan, if it does, what happens and how do you realign the, the, the quota? And OK, so what happens, um, you know, is it a six month comp plan, which is a huge red flag to me? Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you wait a minute? What do you have a daily comp plan? Cut it out. <laughs> That's a handicap. You know what that is. It's like, we don't know what we're doing, but we damn sure don't want to pay you much. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And it is a big game because let's face it, you know, I've been on a board of a couple of companies and the CEO sandbags the board. Okay. The VP of sales sandbags the CEO. And then the regional managers sandbag the VP and the reps sandbag the VP. It trickles down and everyone knows it. Right. So, but everybody who's smart knows like, okay, the board's looking for 20% growth. We can't go in saying we're going to get 10% growth. We can say, well, we'll get in 15 to 18. Right. And, and then they say, now we can, okay, we'll settle at 19. And then that, and that trickles down. And is the quota really a division of the number of reps into the total number? Rarely. Right. <laughs> And what's crazy is I had a consultant on my on my B2B podcast. All he does is this. And I go, well, what is the industry standard expectation of the number of reps that will make quota? He goes, 60%. And I'm like, you remember in the 90s? It was always based off of 100%. Right. That today, is, that today, they're expecting only 60%. That means they're over-assigning quota. Man, I'll tell you, I think that number's high. I mean, just, just, <laughs> I, I just think that's high. Do just you? from the organizations I've worked with, 60% of reps making quota. I don't know if I – I mean, 
I'm trying to think if in in the last 12 months any of the clients I've worked with had more than I want to say more than 40 really 45% of reps making quota consistently because that that that's career crippling it is because, oh yeah without a doubt because if you're a hiring manager you, and or, or it forces people to lie which is probably more common well yeah sure. right <laughs> because if only 40 or say even 50% just to round it off that that other 50% isn't going to be able to get a job. Plus, they're going to be either fired or, you know, work their way out of the company because they're not making their number. Right. And then they go look for a job and the hiring manager, I don't want to interview anyone who can't make their number. Well, then you're and not talking like, to a lot of people then. <laughs> right. So I think we're almost mandating mediocrity today. That's a really good point. I, I would, you know, I hadn't thought about it like that, but you were, I think you're 100% right. I think we have set up structures that are not only mandating it, but allowing it. And, and that gets into a whole bigger conversation, I'm sure. But I mean, when you think about it, the, the sales job is to move the ball down the field into the red zone and score revenue and grow revenue. That is our job. And it's the reason I moved from marketing to sales back before all the tech made marketing, you know, data available was because it was, it was so simple you are successful if you hit your quota or exceed it. There's that we're not, there's nothing else to talk about. Like it's that simple. And where's the fun? The fun yeah. isn't at 60% <laughs> of your number. The fun isn't 80% of your number. The fun is at 110 oh, yeah. to 150% of your We're in those accelerators that, you know, are like cocaine. Yeah. You, know? you get a taste of it in the front. Not that fact, I would know what that's like. I don't know either. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that. But my business partner and I were talking the other day, and, and she, she even said, she goes, do you remember the first time you got your first $75,000 commission check? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember it, and that is what I strive for, that I want that again and again. It's, it's Pavlovian. Yes. Like, wow, that, that off of that one deal in the first quarter of it, I'm getting, okay, yes, please more. And I will work harder, but that's what, for me, it's the money's great, but for me, it's the game. I love the game. I love the puzzle of it. That's why I love B2B complex sales because it's a puzzle. Like, how do I put this thing together? It's a comp plan. It's a puzzle. How do I beat this game? Right. And that type of drive and curiosity has to be fostered by the management, supported by the culture. It has to be part of the DNA of the organization, and it has to manifest itself in the way that you comp and interact with and hire and coach your sales organizations. Right. And, and let's face it, sales draws people who are money motivated. And oh, if yeah. you don't motivate them with money, you're missing the point because, yes, you'll get the smiling and nodding, but that doesn't get the people up at four in the morning to head off to the airport, right. you know, to drudge through all of that stuff, to, you know, to hang out in the lobby in an unannounced <laughs> meeting to try and get five minutes with a procurement manager who's, you know, way overworked as the last person on earth they want to see is you. You got your donuts in your hand and begging to get that order through. <laughs> You know, was, I, I did a video on YouTube about a sales rep with a God complex, and, uh, <laughs> and it was a, a parody on the movie Malice, where the, uh, there's oh, a that was heart the Alec Baldwin. I saw yeah. it on LinkedIn. I saw that. Yes, I watched it. That was great. <laughs> that was great. I watched it. Yeah, when you posted it on LinkedIn, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the tagline at the close is he was on on the road December 31st, and he doesn't like to be second guessed. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, it's just, it's a, there's a drive. I don't know. There's, 
you know, I think when people start looking for the, the, the next sales jobs, maybe one of the first places that they should look at is themselves. They should do some self-assessment. Yes. Like, what, you know, why am I in sales? And what is my motivator? The money's great because then it removes a lot of concerns, right? But at some point, um, you've got to ask yourself, you know, is there an end game for you? Like, for me, I can't ever imagine not being in sales, even now as, you know, with the value selling stuff that we're doing and the training, I'm selling it every day. We're going after big complex deals and working with startups. I get to sell it and then train it and then work with the clients. That's the perfect sweet spot for me because I get all of the best parts of the world, but you need to check with yourself and say, why are you in sales? Are you willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary to deliver the results to the company and to yourself, to your family, to your friends, whatever it may be? Like, what is driving you to do it? So, and what job you pick next or how you evaluate it? I think that's probably the, the place I would recommend most people start. Ask yourself, why the hell are you in sales? And do you yeah. know what that really means? Yeah, because it is a very personal decision and you've got to find the right match for you, not for, for me or, or Chad, right? right. It's like, uh, we'll, we'll do okay on our own. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to figure out what's right for you. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. Hope you enjoyed listening to Brian and I talk about things you should be thinking about as you contemplate your next move in your sales career. It's a conversation uh, that we enjoyed having. Hope you guys found some value in it. And remember, as you start looking for those organizations, uh, you need to look at not only where you think you're going to have the greatest success, but organizations that can help support your efforts that you're going to plug into seamlessly, really provide value from day one. Make sure that the compensation plan, the leadership, things of that nature are set up in order to make you successful and the company successful as a whole. We appreciate you listening. Please do us a favor, drop us a review on iTunes, shoot us an email with suggestions for other individuals you'd like us to have on the show or other topics you'd like us to cover. And until next time, we at Value Prime Solutions wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.